Hey, good morning, guys. Glad you're here. Happy Labor Day weekend. I hope you're doing something fun this weekend. Today in the child, excuse me, the adult message, we're going to be thinking about what it means for us to be light, light, uh, light in a dark world. So I want to ask you a question. When you think of light, what comes to mind? Anything? When you think of light, any ideas? Yeah, what do you got? The sun. Okay, the tan. Yeah, get, sun is good. It gives us tan. It makes us healthy. What else? When you think of light, anything else? Yeah. What do? You, what's that? Stars. Stars. Yeah, absolutely. Light's a good thing, right? Light is an important thing. It's a great uh, idea in the Bible. Light is always associated with good things. When you think of darkness, what do you think of? Dark. Blackness. Is dark usually easy or fun? No, dark can be kind of scary, right? Yeah. When I think of light and darkness, well, I'll tell you what I've been thinking about is I think of my new bike light right here. I got a, a bike light the other day, and I, I ride with bike lights during the day and at night so that people can see me. And this is my bike light. Here, let me turn it on for you. So it's got, it's got a, a low, low uh, beam. It's got a flashing beam. There it is. And it's got a high beam. See that? Oh, yeah, I'm blinding you. I'm sorry. Um, the point is, when you ride with light, people can see you, and you're safe. Because you're safe, they can see you, and then they will be driving more carefully, and so it creates good things. Light creates good things, okay? Here's a verse I want you to think about. We're going to read about it together in just a minute. Paul writes, You were once darkness, but now... You are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. So that's what we're all going to be thinking about today. How do we live as people in the light? How do we live in a way that's good and healthy so that our world benefits from that? Okay? What you got? No. Do you have a question? Go ahead. Okay, no worries. Well, let me pray for you and then we'll go on. Lord, thanks for these young disciples. Thanks for the ministry you give to them as um, school, school kids. Thanks for their families. We commit them into your care and ask you to bless them. Help them live as light, just as all of us are hoping to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being up here. You can go back to your seats now. We've got a video for you.
March of 2020, well into the latter part of 2020, was a faithful giving that met the needs far in excess of what we had anticipated. Many, many people committed and then gave to what their dreams were. So last year obviously was strange, but people followed through as a commitment, just like they've done for so many years here at Grace Commons. And we saw the, the commitments roll in. We saw the, the capital campaign uh, coffers continue to, to raise. And so we were able to move ahead with the projects we had in hand. And so that's been able to go on really without a hitch because those gifts came in. That capital campaign was really successful. And as that goes on in the next couple of years, we expect to see that completely built out so that we can realize the vision that was, was put before us here in 2019. If you're curious about how you can get involved financially, there are three ways that you can help. Certainly giving to the general fund, and then also considering to give to a Boulder Vision campaign. While we've met the initial goals uh, that were set for us, there's certainly opportunity to continue to give. Then the third uh, leg of the stool in giving to the church revolves around the foundation. The foundation is a great opportunity to think about lifetime giving and creating a legacy for not just the next generation, but generation after generation. We have a fabulous opportunity with our foundation to create a financial platform that we can use to help fund the future ministries here at Boulder. One of the things we've done in our own stewardship is to invest in places where we're engaged. And there's no place we're more engaged than Grace Commons. Both Cindy and I are here lots and lots of times during the week, and we fellowship with the folks here. This is who we do life with. We don't have other pieces of it, but we live out our life with the folks that are here at Grace Commons. Life together, that is our theme this fall, and it's really a, an apt theme. It's an important theme because we have been apart. We have been apart for so long, for 18 or more months. And so we are relearning how to do life together, how to be in community together, how to uh, serve together, how to uh, share in the opportunities God gives us to share of our time, our treasures, our talents. So life together is our theme this fall, and to help us think about that, we are in a sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And it is uh, an, a remarkable book. It's uh, really, truly one of my favorite letters in the New Testament. If you don't know Ephesians, let me suggest that you become friends with it, that you read it and study it. It's not long, it's six chapters long, and uh, it, will, it will reward you greatly. Um, I, uh, I do want to issue an advisory before we begin this morning's sermon. There is mature content, and so if you have a child here and uh, you uh, may not be sure if this is appropriate, this is an opportunity for you to consider going out into Sheldon Jackson Parlor. There are books, there are baskets of toys. Uh, that might be more appropriate, but we will be talking about mature subject matter, so this is a parental discretion advisory. Um, and it's important that we do this because when we preach through an entire book, we, we don't get to pick and choose. We need to look at all the verses in succession, and uh, that brings us today's, to today's text. Um, our text today is at least PG-13. Um, and our text today is a dangerous 
text. It's a dangerous text. It's dangerous for you as listeners, and it's dangerous for me as a preacher. Let me explain. It's dangerous for you as listeners because if you take this text out of context and try to apply it in your own strength, you will hurt yourself. You'll be in trouble. It will lead you into legalism, into a works righteousness where you will try to earn God's favor in your own strength, and that will not be good. You'll be in trouble. Our text is also dangerous to you as listeners for the opposite reason. You can go the other direction and simply dismiss the text. Say that it's old-fashioned and it's irrelevant. That was then, this is now, it doesn't apply. And that would be foolish, because then you would miss the riches of our passage and all the goodness it has for us. Our text today is dangerous and dangerous for you as listeners and dangerous for me as a preacher. It's hard to preach on what I'm about to read. With a passage like this one, we preachers are tempted to wag our fingers and slip into mere moralism, basically saying, don't drink, don't cuss, don't dance, don't chew, and don't run with guys and gals who do. Or just like you, we are also tempted to avoid our passage or to relativize it and say, that was then, this is now, it no longer applies. God help us to take the text seriously. Are you ready? Let's take a look at our text. We're looking today at Ephesians chapter five, beginning at verse three. In any text we read, we need to read it in its context. And so let me back up and I'll just share with you these verses and then we'll read our passage. Here's what Paul just wrote and we got to it last week. Let me remind you, it goes like this. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Boy, if we could stop right there, that would be enough. You're dearly loved children. I'm a dearly loved child. This is what Paul says is to motivate us. As dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It's with love and with affirmation and assurance that we come to our passage now. Now we can read it. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 3. Paul writes, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let me say a word about that. Paul's not talking about someone who slips up, a Christian who messes up, because if that were the case, none of us would have a hope. Paul's talking about people who live this lifestyle habitually, people who are characterized by these things. That's what Paul is warning against. Let's go on to verse six. Let no one deceive you with empty words, words that say, oh, this doesn't really matter. Let no one deceive you with empty words because, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Do not be intimately associated with people who live these lifestyles. Verse eight, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. 
Live as children of light. That's what we shared with the young disciples. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, which may have been an early Easter hymn for the early Christians. Verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, the book of Isaiah reminds us that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. May you by your spirit be our instructor and teacher. For Jesus' sake, amen. You know what I wish I had was an hour or more with you to teach through all of this text. I really can't do that. So we can only focus on three things today, three things that seem to me to be very relevant to us in the first, uh, 21st century, just as much as those who lived in the first century. These are the three things, lust, language, and liquor. These are relevant things, things that we, as God's people, need to consider and think about how we are going to live in them. So let's consider lust first. Paul writes, but among you, and that's a you plural, among you Christians, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, what the other translations often refer to as fornication, which you'll see in a moment is not the best translation. There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity, also a sexual reference, or of greed, and in this context, greed most likely refers to wanting more of these sexual experiences. Uh, By the way, the word greed in Greek is an interesting word. It is a word that literally means have more. Greed is that inclination we have to have more. It could be sexual experiences, it could be material possessions, have more. That's what Paul is warning us against. And why? Because these are improper for God's holy people. That word sexual immorality and impurity, these need to be unpacked, and that's where we turn to John Stott, the late great British church leader and writer, speaker, pastor, He writes, the Greek words for fornication, porneia, you can hear the word pornography in that. The Greek words for fornication, porneia, and impurity, akatharsia, together cover every kind of sexual sin. In other words, all sexual intercourse outside the God-ordained context of a loving marriage. That is all-encompassing. Paul is concerned that the Christians live differently, that they be lights in the darkness of the surrounding culture. And lest we think that those were easier days than they are today, let us be reminded of what 
People are discovering in places like Pompeii, Italy. Pompeii, the town beneath Vesuvius, which erupted in AD 70, and covered the village and its people with lava. And archaeologists have now unearthed much of that, and they're seeing bodies in complete, completely intact. They're seeing murals and paintings on walls of pornography. It was everywhere. It was encouraged, in fact. I mean, well-to-do people had beautiful pornography, they thought, in their homes. The point is, that culture was no different from our own in that way. Sexually rampant and behaviors that were easily as much of a struggle for early Christians as they are for us today. Furthermore, in Ephesus, there was a temple to Diana. She's the, uh, the goddess who, among other things, was in charge of fertility. And so uh, these practices were all part of the worship of Diana. So Paul is concerned that Christians then and now do not live like this. And so we need to ask, where's the gospel in these verses? Where's the good news? The good news is uh, that God has given us the gift of sexuality. It is a good gift. It is meant to be enjoyed in its proper bounds. It's a lot like fire or water. Fire's a gift when it stays in the fireplace, but when it burns up forests, and takes out the whole Western United States, it's a bad thing. Water's a good thing when it stays in its courses, but when it floods a place like Louisiana or elsewhere, it's a bad thing. Same with sexuality. It stays in its courses, and it's a good gift. Paul wants us to experience it as a good gift. That is lust. The next thing we ought to, I think, pay attention to is the word language. Paul says there should, there, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. In the context in which Paul is uh, writing, this is a reference also to sort of sexual behavior and all the uh, language that goes with it. Have you ever noticed how many bad words have to do with sex? It's again a cheapening of something that is meant to be good. And language is meant to also be God's good gift to us. Language is important and we are gifted with speech. We're the only creatures God has made that speak. And so our language is meant to be a gift and a good thing that makes the the air around us better instead of polluted. Our words matter. That's another gospel message here in the second word, language. Let's go on to the third concern of Paul here, which is liquor. Paul writes, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Notice that Paul doesn't say, do not drink wine. Paul says, do not get drunk on wine. And wine stands for any alcoholic beverage. Do not get drunk on wine. Why? Because it leads to debauchery. And that's a word we don't often use, but here's the definition of debauchery. Debauchery is extreme indulgence in bodily pleasures and especially sexual pleasures, behavior involving sex, drugs, alcohol, etc., that is often considered immoral. In the Bible, alcohol is also God's gift, but it's meant to be used wisely in its proper courses. And when it's not, and there are some terrible examples in the Bible of people who misuse alcohol, alcohol has a potential to wreck our lives. And I don't need to tell you how that's possible. We know that. In fact, right now, with the pandemic, alcohol abuse is up significantly. Right now, during the pandemic, two significant studies have been taken across our country, and alcohol abuse is up 20% up for people who drink. And among those who struggle with mental illness, it's up like 60%. 
This is something we need to pay attention to. Alcohol is a gift in moderation within its proper courses, but misusing it, it's destructive. It can take lives. So what have we thought about? We thought about these three L's. We thought about lust and language and liquor. Relevant in the first century, relevant in the 21st century. Now, it's one thing to know that these are concerns. It's another thing to actually put them into practice, to do them, right? I like what James says, and we studied James last summer, as some of you may recall. James says this, do not merely listen to the word, God's word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. How do we do that? How do we do the word today? How do we live this way? What can help us? Just say no is not enough. Well, I would like to offer three ways that we can do the word, and here they are, conviction, confession, and community. Let's start with the first one, conviction. Now, I don't mean by this what a lot of you think about in John chapter six, I think it's verse eight, where Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit who will convict you concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That is not what we're talking about. Conviction here is what you're convinced most deeply about. What are you most convinced about yourself? And so the the challenge is to be who you are really. To be who you are really. Some of us think that we are the sum total of our bad choices, our destructive habits, our regrets. And we think, well, that's who I really am. No, you're not. If you're in Jesus Christ, this is who you really are. Take a look at this verse. This is something to memorize. Paul writes elsewhere, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's what a Christian is, someone in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. We are new. Despite our feelings, despite our bad habits, we are new. And so Paul is asking us to be who we really are, deep at our core, a new person. Let me share with you a grammar lesson. It's a spiritual grammar lesson. Indicatives empower imperatives. What do I mean? For those of you who are grammarians or studied English literature or whatever, you know that uh, indicatives and imperatives, these are governing mood the mood of a a particular sentence. Indicatives are those things that indicate who we are, indicate who God has made us. Imperatives, on the other hand, tell us what we gotta go do. And in the Bible, indicatives, who we are already, empower imperatives. And if you get this order right, you get the gospel. And if you mix up this order, you get something else. Here's what happens in Ephesians. The indicatives of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 tell us that we are new in Christ. And then we get chapter 4, verse 1, which is the great therefore. Next slide. You are new in Christ, Paul says, therefore, and we get four, uh, four, five, and six, three more chapters of imperatives, what we need to go do. You are new in Christ, therefore, live as new people. Are you with me? We, we, we live out of the, the core of who we, are meant, who we are in Christ. And there's an indicative in the heart of our passage today, and it's the best news in the whole text. Let's look at this next slide. Paul says, for you were once darkness, you used to live that pagan lifestyle, but now you are light in the Lord. 
Live as children of light. That is an indicative that is empowering and imperative. Do you believe this? Do you believe that at your heart, if you were in Christ, you were new? You've got to believe that. I've got to believe that. And when the the temptation comes to us, we have to say, who am I? Who am I? Am I my old self that would have gone after that? Or am I new? It takes faith. You are saved by faith and you are sanctified by faith. You're made more like Christ through faith. And so when we make decisions based on what we believe about ourselves. Last week, Daniel, uh, when he preached, he shared uh, this clip from Ice Age. And I did a little, I, I never watched it. I, I, I really want, there are several Ice Age movies, apparently. This was from, I think, the second one. But you've got this uh, mammoth on, on your uh, left. And this is Manny, Manny the mammoth. And he believes he's the only mammoth left. And he so longs to have a family and a mate. And then he runs into Ellie, the uh, female mammoth on the right. The only problem, as we learned last week, is that Ellie thinks she's an opossum. Ellie was raised by a family of opossums. And so she genuinely thinks that she's an opossum. That is a problem. We need to live out our true identity. And we are not the old, the sum total of our bad mistakes. No, we are new, new creatures. Years ago, I was encouraged uh, to write a prayer of recollection. And this was supposed to be a daily reminder in my devotions of who I am at my core. And, uh, and so I wrote this prayer of recollection. I dug it out the other day. And I really need to revisit this from time to time. It's a prayer that I wrote for myself. It goes like this. Heavenly Father, in faith, I affirm today that at my core, I am not a husband, father, brother, or son. At my core, I am not a pastor, preacher, teacher, or cyclist. At my core, I do not need people to like me, approve of me, or agree with me. I don't need to be successful or never fail. I don't need to be wealthy or have lots of possessions. I don't need to be in control. I don't need to be physically attractive or in good shape. Though these things may be nice and seem important, they do not define me. I am not these things at my core. Rather, in faith, I remember that I am under no condemnation, Romans 8.1. I am a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. I am free in Christ, John 8.36. I am a beloved child of God, John 1.12. I am completely secure in Christ's love, Romans 8. I am Jesus' friend, John 15, verse 15. Amen. Thank you. Well, this is, this is your story. I encourage you to write your own prayers of recollection, affirming who you are at your core, and meditating on that, and then living out of that. I once heard the saying, maybe you've heard it too, but it shows us the power of what we think and how it influences our actions. It goes like this. Sow a thought, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a behavior. Sow a behavior, reap a lifestyle. Sow a lifestyle, reap a destiny. What we think about ourselves and how we act on that can shape the trajectory of our whole lives. And folks, when we fail the imperatives, and we will, we need to go back to the indicatives. 
Go back to the indicatives and remember who you are. Okay, that's conviction. Now let's move on to a second word, and that's confession. When we mess up, and we will, we need to say, Lord, forgive me. You know, don't you, that confession simply means to agree. When we confess our sins, all we're doing is saying, God, I agree with you. What I did was wrong for the following reasons. That's not who I am, and I'm sorry for it. That's all confession is. I like to think of confession like a shower. We get dirty, and we go into God's presence, and he wants to cleanse us and wash us clean. If you don't know these next verses, please make sure you do. 1 John 1, 8 and following. Let's look at them. John levels the field for all of us. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's good news. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Let's keep going. My dear children, John says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Isn't that great? We will sin. We will fall short. But when we confess it to God, God not only forgives us, but God allows Jesus to be our defense attorney. What a wonderful thing. And confession, you know, works best in community. Uh, and, and we need one another. We need to become a confessing community together. So let's think about where we've come from. We, uh, this next slide. Uh, actually, let's, uh, just jumped over this. This is a great quote. Let me, let's go back to that, Doug, that one, that C.S. Lewis quote. This is so good. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, after each failure, see, he's realistic, we're gonna fail. After each failure, ask forgiveness, pick yourself up and try again. Very often what God first helps us towards is not the virtue itself, but just this power of always trying again. It cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend on God. Let us become a confessing community. So we've thought a little bit about conviction, we've thought about confession, now we finally talk about community. We think about this, let's do this together. We're in a sermon series on life together. And we want to do life together as we worship together, as we serve together, as we give together, as we think about the future together, all that is life together. But it's also a chance for us to be vulnerable and real together, to, to learn how to become a confessing community. You know, when we read our Bibles in English, there is a, a, a difficult thing that happens. We uh, read commandments or imperatives like we've done today, and it's all you do this and you do that, and we think, oh, it's talking to me, it's, it's what I gotta go do. And that's true, but that's not actually what Paul wrote. When Paul said you, he said, you all. In other words, do this together. Live like this together, and when you mess up, confess together, be a community together. In other words, do life together. That is what these uh, second-person plural words mean. Friends, we cannot live Christ's life on our own. Christian faith is not Lone Ranger faith. It is community. And you know who really gets this? The 12-step movement. The 12-step movement, Alcoholics Anonymous, they came out of the Christian movement uh, in the early 20th century, and they, in some ways, have preserved something for us that we need to pay attention to that they come and they acknowledge before one another in small groups that they're broken, 
that they need each other, that they need to walk in the light together. They can't do it alone. How important that is for all of us to do that. Men's life groups, women's well groups, these are opportunities to build relationships where we can confess together. And you know this goes for pastors too, doesn't it? Sure it does. Uh, Pastors need accountability and and places of authenticity just as much as anyone else. And uh, a lot of us talk about our covenant groups, groups where we meet with other pastors annually often. Covenant groups, in my opinion, are overrated because you could easily go meet with other pastors once a year and share your stuff and then go back to your own life and you don't see them for another year. That's the problem with covenant groups. We need something that's a little more regular and local. And for me, that means a spiritual director I see monthly. It means two particular friends out of state I speak to at least monthly, where I can be very, very honest about what's going on in my life. Do you have that? We each need that in order to walk in the light. Well, let's think about where we've gone. Let's first look at what we are challenged with to think about lust, language, and liquor, just as relevant to us as it was back then. And then we've been given these three suggestions about conviction, be who you really are, deep down, genuinely, new people, Uh, confession, Lord, forgive me, conviction, confession, and then community. Let's do this together. Oh, how we need to walk in the light and not do it alone. So important. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this text and for the gospel good news that is in it for the fact that you have made us new. And I pray that you would help us to walk in the light and to find a community of faith here and elsewhere that will help us to do that. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.